0: Good morning. Great to see you all. Uh, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. How good it is to be together, all focused on the Lord. I just love this time. Well, uh, we're going to finish this chapter today and finish a section of Matthew that began in chapter 21. Um, Matthew 24 and 25 are really the end of Jesus' teaching ministry in the gospel, and these chapters are meant to prepare us for the return of Christ following his death and resurrection and ascension. So in these chapters, we find Jesus in Jerusalem. He's about to be betrayed. He's about to be falsely condemned by his own people and then crucified at the hands of Israel's Roman occupiers. A truly horrible thing. He's preparing his disciples for what's to come. So in chapter 24, Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, which came to a horrible fulfillment less than 40 years later. But he says that the horror of those days will be cut short, and he warns them about following false Christs, and he tells them that his coming will be visible in the sky with great power and glory. So... We're anticipating this return where every eye will see him. And to prepare us as we wait for that, he proceeds to tell us a series of parables and give instructions about how to be ready for his return. He tells them that his coming will be utterly unexpected, that they must work faithfully for him, even if his coming seems to be a long time. Last week, Chris walked us through a parable about 10 young women who were to escort a groom to his wedding feast by the light of their lamps. And we learned from that parable that there is a heavenly wedding coming, but only to those prepared for it to enter into the joy of the event. And this leads us to the last two parts of Jesus' teaching. Both deal with how we can know that we are doing what our master wants prior to his return. This is very relevant to all of us in this room. Both speak of accountability. Both speak to how God will call us to account at the end of this age. How do you know that you've lived a good life? I'm at an age where there are more years to look back on than to look forward to. And I wonder, have I lived a good life? If you're young, you always think that there are years to reform yourself, years to improve. But when you're old, you come to realize that those days are passing. I'm not saying that old men can't grow and change and bear fruit for Jesus' kingdom. I'm raising the question of evaluating ourselves before Jesus returns to evaluate us. And adjusting our lives if they're being wasted on things not from or for him so that's the the context that we're gonna start to read in here Uh, it's two longish sections so we're gonna read one and then I'll comment on that and then we'll read the other so Matthew 25 beginning with verse 14 these are God's very words For it, that is the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, His master said to him, Well done, good and, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where the, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God give us insight into his word now this parable has a lot of similarities to one at the end of chapter 24 in which a household servant mistreats those under him while the master is away and spends his days at the bar getting drunk at which time his master suddenly returns the focus there is staying at our post doing what is right expecting Jesus to return at any time. But the focus in this parable is not so much on faithfulness as it is on fruitfulness. The three recipients of these talents are not mere household servants. We're talking about exceptionally large sums of money. Now, when we hear the word talent, we typically think of the English definition, which describes a person's ability to perform a task well. So a talent for the guitar, or for basketball, or crocheting, or investing. In Jesus' day, that's not what the word meant. A talent was a unit of money, typically of silver. We don't know the exact weight of a talent, but we have enough evidence to say confidently that a talent weighed between 60 and 80 pounds. It's hard to quantify what that would mean in today's dollars, but we could compare it to how long a minimum wage worker would need to work to earn one talent in Jesus Day. it would come to about 6,000 days of work. So in today's economy, if you work 200 days in a year making, say, $15 an hour, it would take you 30 years to earn the equivalent of one talent of silver. To get an idea of what this wealthy man did in numbers we can relate to, he gave the first servant $3.6 million, the second one $1,440,000, and the third $720,000. And even in wealthy America, this is some serious money to entrust to one man. Each man's job was to engage in business enterprises of his choosing to increase the value of their master's investments. This sounds nuts to me. Now, this master is smart. He evaluates each of them and realizes that one can handle five times what another can wisely invest. So he individualizes their responsibilities, five talents to one, two to another, one to a third and the text says then he went away how long is not important to the parable except that verse 9 tells us he was gone for a long time when he comes back we learn that the master given the servant given 5 talents has doubled his master's money that's good business the master's response is very interesting look back at verse 21 His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will make you, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So he rewards him by giving him more responsibility. And he invites him to enter into his, his, the master's, Joy. He said, I'm so happy with what you've done. I want you to have the same happiness. This servant is actually, and the Greek word leaves no question, this servant is his slave. And he wants his slave to experience the same pleasure that he does over the increase in his wealth. Notice the master doesn't free his slave The man can't say, I think I'm going to take my salary and bonus and retire to the Caribbean. Instead, he gets more work to do and he gets the pleasure and satisfaction of knowing that his master is well pleased. The one who began with two talents likewise doubles his master's money and he gets the same response, more responsibility and the pleasure of sharing his master's joy. The third servant, whose limited abilities necessitated the smallest investment, has done nothing with the money, and he makes excuses as to why. Look at verse 24. Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and scattering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. He shifts the blame to the master. Tells the master, you're a hard man. You reap where you do not sow. You exploit the power of your wealth to make more money. He compares the master to the shark tank winner. He knows how to use every advantage to get ahead despite the harm it may cause to others along the way. The man's argument is that if he lost any money, his master would treat him badly. I was afraid, he says. So he simply kept what he'd been given so he could return it. The master calls him wicked and slothful. He's wicked because of how he judged his master, and he's slothful because he did not fulfill his responsibility to invest the money so it would grow. The master tells him that if he truly is a hard man who grabs for every dime he can get, the servant could at least have put the money in the lowest risk investment he could find, which would give a return of, well, I think my bank does one and a half percent on your deposits. So the master takes the one talent from the man and effectively fires him, giving the talent to the one who now has 10 to work with. The servant who misjudged his master and did not keep... And did nothing with his talents is cast into outer darkness where he will weep and gnash his teeth. A place where he cannot see and weeps in anguish over his loss and rejection by the master. So what are we to get out of this? Well, Jesus tells us what we get out of this is in verse 29. For, okay, so here's, here's what I want you to get from this parable. To everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's what we're to see. If you are faithful and fruitful, you will be given more opportunity to be faithful and fruitful. If you reject his offer to service, you will lose your relationship with him altogether. So what can we learn about ourselves from this parable? And before we can learn from it, parables make a comparison. And so we got to figure out what is Jesus trying to get us to compare a talent to? What would a talent be in our lives? Some, well, first thing we, we, we would know is it can't be about multiplying money. This is a parable of the kingdom of heaven, okay? So this is not a parable just for those who invest and trade stocks or bonds or whatever. Parables make a point that call us to think deeply about a comparison we can make to our own life. Jesus has plenty to say about the use of money, but that's not what this parable is about. Some have said this, this must be about spiritual gifts, as Paul listed them in his letters to the Corinthians and the Romans. But that seems to narrow the application in a way the text does not. Jesus doesn't narrow it down to that. Others have said that talents are natural abilities and that we should develop our abilities best we can for God. But as I said earlier, the word Matthew uses here has nothing to do with natural ability. His original readers would have heard he was talking about Money. So I understand this. Understand a talent to be any opportunity God has given you to extend His kingdom. It's a parable about the kingdom. A kingdom is the rule of a king. Any opportunity. I may take to help other people submit to the rule of the king is thus an investment in the talent he's given me. You take what you have in the context of the people you live among and use it to promote submission to Jesus as king. Let me say that again, because you take what you have. We all have different opportunities Take what you have in the context of the people you live among and use it to promote submission to Jesus as king. And as we see in the parable, Jesus gives some of us more opportunity than others. He calls us to take what we have and use it. For more than 40 years, you and many others have given offerings so I could promote Jesus' kingdom with most of my working hours. So that's, that's a lot of opportunity. But maybe you came to faith late in life. You still have opportunity before you. It may be that your primary contribution to the kingdom is in loving and providing for a handicapped child. And your life seems really small still you have opportunity we all have opportunity now here's the beauty of the parable Jesus gives us opportunities that each of us can handle and whether our talent is large or comparatively small he rewards anyone who invests his or her life opportunities in his kingdom do you see that it's about rewards It's about entering his joy. It's about the joy of being fruitful. And whether you have small opportunities, large opportunities, we all get to get in on this. And did you notice that the response of the master to both the man who doubled his five talents and the man who doubled his two is exactly the same. This vastly expands the horizons of what it means to serve and creates the potential to do good where we might not have thought, we might have thought it didn't count there's just opportunities laying all over the place just have to take them So it's not like some special people have a special ministry. We all have a ministry. Jesus has laid it out for all of us. We are all his slaves, his servants. He's given us these opportunities, these talents, and he's saying to us, Now, I want you to take them up and use them, and let's see what grows. Jesus is asking us to think about our lives. What opportunities has he given you to help people submit to Jesus kingly rule? Are you taking those opportunities? They might involve your children, family members, coworkers, classmates, neighbors. Anyone nearby who allows us the opportunity to show the love of Jesus and promote the knowledge of his character and his work is an opportunity. So rather than having to go on some great quest or uh, to engage ourselves in some great full-time ministry, we just look at what the Lord has put before us, and we invest. And this leads us to the second section that we're going to look at today, and the end of Jesus' instruction on his second coming. So read with me, beginning now in verse 31. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me. Now, remember, it's the king speaking here. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. When Jesus returns, he's going to separate people. He's going to gather before him all people alive at the time of his return and those people who have died. They're going to be separated into two groups. He compares the separation to how a shepherd might separate his flock at the end of the day. Often shepherds would pasture sheep and goats during the day. They needed different shelter and treatment. For the night. When the sheep and goats of Jesus' day grew their hair long, they could look very similar, though they are a very, very different species. Only the shepherd would know how to distinguish one from the other. The point is not why the shepherd does this, the point is that he does this. When Jesus returns, all the people who have ever lived will be gathered before Him. We will all look alike. We have lived together, worked together, enjoyed the common things of life together. So to each other, we are indistinguishable, like the parable of the wheat mixed in with the weeds. We all look a lot like wheat. But the groups end up in very different places. One group inherits, verse 34, inherits the kingdom as specifically prepared for each individual. This is to be taken as each of this group will be given under Jesus' kingship, his own kingdom to rule. That's an interesting thought. The other group is sent into eternal punishment. Jesus tells them why he divided them as he did. It's how they treated Him, they fed him, clothed him, welcomed him, visited him when he was sick or incarcerated. One group did this, another had the opportunity, but did not. Both groups, now this is important to notice, if you're going to understand this parable, both groups are baffled by Jesus' response. He's the king who's been in heaven prior to his return. How could they possibly do this for him? (laughs) So verse 40 is key to interpreting the entire parable. Let's read that again. Look at verse 40. Get your eyes on it. The king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. The least of these, my brothers. So who are Jesus' brothers here? In Matthew 12, Jesus calls his brothers whoever does the will of his Father in heaven. In chapter 28, when the women meet Jesus at the entrance to his tomb following his resurrection, he tells them, go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. So Jesus considers brothers, really siblings, for both men and women are included, those who are his disciples. So what distinguishes a sheep from a goat is how that person treated the least of Jesus' brothers. Brothers who lack food or drink or clothing or housing. Brothers thrown into prison, brothers isolated on their sickbed, brothers forced into exile and living among you as immigrants. Those who offer the help with basic human needs and extend relationship along with that help are what distinguishes them as people who will inherit the kingdom. Some have said that this is a passage that is focused on the poor everywhere. And the Bible has plenty to say about caring for the poor. But that is not the point of this passage. Your relationship to Jesus is revealed by your attitude toward the least of his brothers. In Acts 4, we learn that there was not a needy person among the newly formed church. And there was a lot of poor people in Jerusalem at that time. And there were many people disinherited because they turned and put their faith in Jesus. Following Jesus might include poverty. It might include sickness. It might include imprisonment. In Hebrews 10, we learn that some Christians had their property stolen because they were Christians. And some were thrown into prison because they were Christians and so the church community pooled their resources to help those who suffered loss, and they risked their own reputation by supplying the needs of those in prison and visiting them. That's what's at view here. There are no little people in God's church. There are no losers. Everybody must be cared for, provided for because they're Jesus' brothers. People who ignore Jesus' brothers in their need prove to be those who deserve God's punishment in hell, and that's because Jesus identifies himself with these brothers. And so you remember the story in Acts of Paul, on his way to Damascus, to arrest and extradite the Christians so so that in Jerusalem they could be condemned. And Jesus knocks him off his horse. And what does he say to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That is how closely Jesus identifies with his people. When they suffer, he suffers with them. Now, if we put these two passages together, we could say this. Jesus will hold all people accountable to, number one, whether or not they used the opportunities he gave them to advance his rule. And number two, how they treated his brothers and sisters in their need. Okay? We put these two together. Number one, whether or not they used the opportunities he gave them to advance his rule. And number two, how they treated his brothers and sisters in their need. Now, if you're listening to this, you might be a little suspicious. You might think, I think there's a snake in the grass here. What are you getting at here, John? This sounds an awful lot like salvation by Works. Now, there is a strain of, we could call it theology, in the American experience. And if you carry that belief, you'll get this parable wrong. In 1998, the most popular movie was a war film from World War II called Saving Private Ryan. Many of you have seen it, I'm sure. The movie opens with an elderly man being walking with his family through a cemetery of soldiers who were killed in France in the Normandy invasion. And the old man walks up to one cross, marking a grave in particular. He falls on his knees and he's weeping. And his family's trying to get his attention, and the movie, the camera closes in on his eyes and the rest of the movie is a, almost the rest till the very end is a flashback of his involvement in the Normandy invasion. Uh, it is a brutal movie, very realistic in its depictions of combat at that time. Then we go to the war department where a secretary discovers that as they're sending out letters to parents of children who had died in combat that three brothers in the Ryan family had been killed in action and their mother was being informed of their death. And there's a fourth brother who's with the 101st Airborne which had just dropped into Normandy in the invasion. And so they decide, the War Department decides, they're going to get Private Ryan, pull him out of combat, bring him home to his mother so there are not four sons lost. And so the movie depicts a Captain Miller who was assigned to find this guy in the front lines of this invasion toward Germany. And so they battle their way through and we see the pictures of the landing, we see We see depictions of all these horrible combat actions. We meet all these actors and this team, and they finally get to one of the farthest advanced American positions in the invasion, and there they find Private Ryan. Well, the town they find them in is utterly devastated, and the Germans are beginning to advance with a number of tanks and troops. And so this small company has to fight back, and in the fight, Captain Miller, who led this team in, is killed. But before he dies, he grabs Private Ryan and he looks him in the eye and he says, James, earn this. Earn it. And then he dies. Then we go back to the cemetery and that old man and it turns out the old man weeping before that grave was the private Ryan who was rescued and in tears he looks up at his wife and he says have I lived a good life have I lived a good life and she she doesn't get it you know she's like sure dear yes you've lived a good life But this is what a lot of people deal with. And as you get older, this is the thing you struggle with. Did I earn respect? Did I live a good life? And this text, if you don't read it properly, could lead you to that. Now, there's a warning in the text that if you... Take no opportunity to advance Jesus' kingdom. If you don't care for his people at all, you should be warned. But the burden of the text is that the master has already saved his servants. They're already his servants, they don't earn their freedom, they remain his slaves. Their reward is more responsibility and sharing the joy of their profitable work with the Master. They weren't working to earn anything. you get that? That's not why they're working. In the separation of the sheep and goats, notice that both groups were surprised that they were rewarded or punished based on how they treated the least of Jesus' brothers. If they were surprised they could not have been expecting a reward. Do you see that difference? So in both parables, there's no evidence that they're thinking, wow, if I do this, I do this really well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this, uh, this certain reward of eternal life. The message of the Bible and the message of the Gospel of Matthew is that the Lord saves those who place their faith in Him and turn away from their sins. And the message of the Bible is that those who are saved from God's wrath into His eternal kingdom act in certain ways driven by faith. Not driven to earn heaven, but driven by the winds of heaven already at their backs. These are people who take risks with their talents investing them for the sake of the kingdom. These are people willing to suffer because of their service to the king. And if they are not at present suffering themselves to join in and seek to alleviate the suffering of the least of Jesus' brothers. Someone has already earned it for us. So Captain Miller, you can't earn this. You can believe this and receive this and walk in it knowing that your master is not a hard man. Knowing that your master loves his people right down to the least of his brothers. And so the call and the promise is a call to participate, not to earn. A call to enter into the love and joy of your master, not to live by fear like the man with the one talent. So let us, let us examine our lives. But if the Spirit of Jesus is truly in your life, you will happily notice where there are opportunities before you that you may not have taken yet, but you can. You'll happily evaluate that there are things that are taking you away from these things, and you will happily enter in with your time and your money and your relationship in caring for those who we might count the least of Jesus' brothers. That's the call of the text and the privilege that we have as Jesus' brothers and sisters. The Lord's Supper is our weekly reminder that our sins earned us God's wrath and that Jesus' death for us earned us God's righteousness. And so this supper that we're about to take is a participation in what he has already done for us so that we can now walk with him and live for him. Now, if you do not believe in Jesus, this is a supper just for people who believe in Jesus and have been baptized in response to that faith. Uh, If you don't, we'd ask that you refrain from the meal because he doesn't invite you to it, but we would ask that you pay attention to this message and this meal so that you too one day can join Jesus at his supper. So Lord, we pray that as we take this meal, we would remember what you earned for us. We would remember that you saved us. And even as we participate in the bread and the cup, We would participate in all your works in the world that you've invited us to. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.